He wrote, most men leave lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. Those words struck me then and years later they still strike me and they particularly strike me in the times in which we live. These times of uncertainty and instability in our culture, our economy, for some of us in our relationships, we can relate to these words. We wonder, we wonder what a life of contentment, a life of contentment actually looks like, not to mention how we might experience it. I mean, what does it mean in the world and the times in which we live to be content? When you hear that, that word contentment, what picture comes to your mind? I mean, do you, is contentment the image of success, of being number one in everything that we do? Is contentment always being on top? Is contentment maybe the image of community for you, being close to our loved ones, having lots of friends and being valued and needed by others? Is that contentment? Or perhaps we hear that word contentment and we most associate with the proverbial scene of sitting on a beach, relaxing with a drink, enjoying the simple fact that we have nothing to do. No responsibilities to meet, no work to be done, no deadlines to keep, no appointments to follow up on. Is this what contentment looks like? As we come to the end of Paul's letter, we need to listen carefully because Paul has a secret to share with us. The secret of contentment. Let us hear from Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and even more, I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs 
according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To God, our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul is so emphatic, he actually says, I will say it again, rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything. Right from the start, Paul directs us to the means of contentment, the first step in finding contentment, when he writes, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. For most of us, this idea of of prayer, Paul is saying that the, the way towards contentment, towards being free of stress and anxiety is prayer, where to this idea of lifting up our concerns, our requests to God, for many of us, this is obvious. And we're kind of like, okay, next. And maybe for others of us, we hear Paul's words here and we find them rather simple or maybe even naive. But it's important that we don't just breeze past prayer because As much as we can say it's obvious or we can say it's simple and naive, how many of us in the day-to-day moments of our lives find ourselves so consumed by worry that prayer is often an afterthought? Our lives are so busy, we're so overwhelmed by stress that some of us can actually forget to pray. Days can go by, weeks even, before prayer even crosses our minds. Speaking for myself and in my own journey of faith and as a pastor engaging in the vocation of others like yourself, I tend to find more and more that for us as a species, as human beings, in a lot of ways, most of our unhappiness, our frustration, our insecurity, the discontent in our lives is due to the fact that we're monologuing all the time. We're talking and listening to ourselves. You know, I love to talk to myself. I talk to myself quite a lot because I never talk back. I love to talk to myself because I say always what I want to hear. I think. You know, we talk to ourselves all the time. We mutter and lament to ourselves when we're caught up in the stress and anxiety of our lives. We mutter and lament in our depressed way, well, you've done it now. You've done it now. You'll never figure this one out. It's never going to get better. That's just the way things are. Or maybe we talk to ourselves in a different way. Maybe we talk to ourselves, we monologue by keep trying to pump up our wounded egos, pumping ourselves up. You know what? You deserve more. You can do better. Don't you settle. It's not enough. You're still lacking something. These are the voices in your head, the voice of your own voice that you continue to hear again and again. Paul is saying that the most practical, radical, and initial step that we can take towards contentment is prayer. Turning outside instead of inward. Reaching out instead of getting more lost in our own cares and worries. Prayer is an act of submission. It's an act of submission that recognizes that all that we have, all that we are, is not primarily because of us. It's first and foremost because of him. Prayer, if you will, is a posture. It's an orientation that acknowledges that God is the provider and that we are the responders to his provision in our lives. And so Paul points us to prayer as the first step toward contentment because when we pray, we are choosing to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit for our security. Instead of repeatedly talking to ourselves, 
in order to find stability in our lives. But Paul very quickly moves from prayer to something else. Prayer is not just a posture orientation of turning towards God. Prayer in turning towards God is allowing God to change the way we think. As Paul continues, there is specific content that ought to emerge from our prayers that lead us toward contentment. And what is the content of contentment, as Paul writes? It's whatever, it's whatever is true, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. Paul says, think about such things. What I want us to do right here is I want us to stop for a second and I want us to notice the entirely different connection that Christianity makes between contentment and our minds versus other belief systems and philosophies. Most Eastern religions, if you're familiar with any at all, most Eastern religions teach that contentment or inner peace is found when you clear your mind, when you meditate to the point that your mind is empty and still. In our Western world, the conventional wisdom is that contentment is achieved by keeping an open mind. It's the willingness to adopt and adapt to all viewpoints and values. But true gospel contentment, as it's described here by Paul, isn't about keeping our minds empty or keeping our minds endlessly open. True gospel contentment is about keeping our minds full. Full of a particular sort of content in our pursuit of contentment. Because the Bible here and elsewhere declares that we are what we think. As I mentioned last week, we become our choices. And that's why Paul's repeated emphasis in this letter, and this is just another way of saying it, is that we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to think like Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is beautiful, whatever is admirable, praiseworthy, excellent, think about such things. Still, we, we need to clarify this often quoted verse. Some of you have isolated this verse before and you like it so much that you've written it out and put it up on your mirror in your bathroom or on your refrigerator at home or on your car dashboard. And this is one of the, this is one of the, the keepers in Philippians. It's one that's a great one to have in front of you. And it's a great one, but it's often misunderstood. Because I want to clarify that when Paul says, think about such things and lists these eight qualities, what we have here is not a command where Paul is saying these are the only eight qualities about which we ought to think. The idea isn't that our minds should only come into contact with these things. And if that gives you pause and makes you scratch your head for a second, think about it. No pun intended, think about it. If this is Paul's meaning, that we're only supposed to think about these eight things, then that would mean that we would have to completely cut ourselves off from the rest of this world into which God's placed us. If Paul is commanding that we are only to think about these eight things, then I ask you, how are we to share the gospel with others, with our neighbors, if we don't have any? If we don't have any, I mean, how can we share the gospel if we never engage them in terms of where they live, in terms of their thoughts? If this is what Paul is saying, that this is only think about this, don't think about anything else, then if we're really honest, you and I just have to stop thinking altogether. Because Christ has not come back yet, and we still exist in the reality of a fallen and broken creation. And as a result, we are still exposed and subject to the many temptations of this world. What Paul is not saying, this command is not that everything we think about, everything we engage, everything we come in contact to must pass the Philippians 4.8 test. That it has to be true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, gracious, excellent. The command that Paul gives us is that how we think, 
what we think is to be rooted and centered around these qualities. This is our foundation. This is our base camp. This is what we come back to. Not that this is exclusively all that we will ever think about or encounter. And Paul also isn't writing that, just to further underscore that this difference, Paul isn't writing that changing the way we think through prayer will take away our difficulties. Again, let's keep in mind where Paul wrote these words. In a jail cell. Not admirable, not beautiful, not excellent, not praiseworthy. Paul wrote these words from a jail cell. Paul knew full well, and he's told us often in this letter, that sufferings and hardships are inevitable for anyone who chooses to follow a crucified Lord. As Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. We can't avoid it. But as Jesus continued, if you remember his words, but I give you my peace. This is what Paul is tapping into. Trouble will come our way, but instead of letting our hearts and minds be fixated with destructive and anxiety-creating thoughts, we can make an intentional effort through prayer to be filled. To be filled with what's true, what's good, what's beautiful in our world, all of which, co which comes from God's loving hand. Beloved, the key is that we, when, when we remember, when we focus on the true, good, and beautiful things of God, we remember the goodness of God himself. Through prayer... Paul is writing, we can allow the Holy Spirit to replace our anxiety and despair with trust and hope. With trust and hope that come not just from realizing how God provides what is good in our lives, that is true, but trust and hope from also coming to understand in a deeper way that Jesus' victory on the cross is God's promise that he can bring good out of our troubles. The evil in our lives can be redeemed too. Prayer, getting on our knees, allowing our thoughts to be changed. But Paul pushes even further as he says, whatever you've learned or received or heard or seen in me, put it into practice. Paul presses on that having the right orientation and having the right thoughts are important as, as we, to move towards contentment, but we can't stop there. Our orientation and our thinking must affect our actions. If you will, learning is about living. The head and the heart must be in sync. Pondering leads to practicing. And we need to hear this because Paul doesn't write, memorize all of this to be content. And that's where some of us, as great as this verse is, Philippians 4, 8, we've put it on our dashboard or our mirror and our refrigerator, and what it's become is we, we get frustrated by what it says and what our lives are, and we're banging our head against our mirror or our dashboard. I just got to get it in there. But Paul doesn't say, memorize this and, you, and you'll be content. He doesn't say memorize all of this to be content. As believers in Christ, Paul has repeatedly said to us, it's not about having the right ideas about Jesus. It's about following him. But Paul also is, doesn't say perfect all of this to be content. Again, as we're banging our heads against this verse as it's up there, why can't I get this right? Why can't I think just about what's true, admirable? Paul doesn't say perfect all of this to be content. No, Paul writes practice. Practice your way towards contentment. And maybe in an analogy that's more helpful, some of you can relate, maybe not. I've shared this before, and you've probably not seen much progress. If you're out of shape, and I am out of shape, I know in my head, I know in my head what I need to do to get back in shape. I am not lacking for knowing all of the different exercise options that are out there. 
or for having invitations from others of how I could exercise more. I'm not lacking, especially now that I have two teenagers in the house, of how I could be eating less or how I could be eating better. Information I don't lack. If anything, I'm on information overload. But the truth is, that information, and part of why it's overload, that information does no good unless I apply it. Unless I actually begin to eat less. Unless I actually begin to eat differently. Unless I actually begin to exercise more. What Paul's getting at is that contentment comes about in the same way that other changes and reorientations in our lives happen. Practice. And you know what that means if we hear that. Perfection is attractive and so is memorization. Because if we say practice, practice takes patience. Practice takes commitment. You have to make time to practice. You have to use the opportunities you're given to practice. And let's be honest, sometimes it's going to feel challenging. Sometimes it's discouraging to learn to do life in a new way. It's challenging and discouraging to learn to do life in a new way. But have you ever noticed something about practice, even though it's hard, and it is hard, practice, even though it's hard, it comes easier when you believe what you're doing. When you're invested, when you're committed, practice can actually be fun. Filled with anticipation, eagerness, and joy. And so, in, in a, on a very serious note, what Paul's underscoring with this word practice is this idea. Our lack of practice, our struggle with practice in our relationship with Jesus, is indicative of one of two things. Our lack of practice or our struggle with practice in this relationship with Jesus is either indicative that we really don't believe all this stuff, and therefore, there is no contentment to be found there. I mean, think about it. We really don't believe all this stuff. Therefore, we don't really believe there's any contentment that can be found in this relationship with Jesus Christ. So our lack of practice says we really don't believe this. Or our lack of practice, our struggle in this practice of relating to Jesus Christ means that what we believe about this God, how we understand this relationship with Jesus, is all wrong. Some of us have got it all wrong. And that's been part of also why we've looked at this letter and why Lent is always so important for us in the life of the church. Because gospel contentment, beloved, isn't supposed to be stressful. The practice of gospel contentment isn't supposed to make us feel like we're killing ourselves. It's not supposed to make us literally, you know, hate what we're doing. Jesus said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. True gospel contentment is not supposed to have that, that, that feeling, that feeling of just that we're, we can't do it. And maybe the problem, maybe the subtlety, and this is where, again, it's important to look at Paul, is maybe what we often associate with practice is why we can't hear Paul here. Because we hear practice, and we think practice means self-mastery. But when Paul says, practice your way towards contentment, he's not talking about self-mastery. You see, that's the, one of the places where we get this relationship wrong. We hear all this stuff, we hear Paul's letters, we come to church, and you leave and you think that the point was, be like Jesus. Practice to be like Jesus. And that's not what Paul is saying. It's not what he said this entire letter. The distinction is not self-mastery. It's not being like Jesus. It's becoming like Jesus. And that verb change is important. The secret of gospel contentment is not that what we have to do. It's not that we have to do it alone. The secret that, of gospel contentment, as Paul gives it to us, is I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Beloved, do you see how apart from God we've got it all backwards? We've got it all upside down? 
We've learned all our lives, all our lives we've been taught that finding contentment is about finding the right circumstances. The right job, the right neighborhood, the right car, the right amount of money, the right diet, the right vacation, the right connections. What are your circumstances of contentment? What's your fill in the blank this morning? Where in this sentence do you fill in the blank? If only these circumstances were true, fill in the blank, then I'd have contentment. Where, what are your circumstances of contentment? If only I had these circumstances, fill in, then I would be content. Whatever you fill in that blank, and have you ever filled in that blank, by the way? Have you ever filled in that blank, actually gotten it filled in? You got those circumstances you really wanted, you believed you needed, and then you, it happened, and you only came to realize that you still weren't content? Paul declares that true gospel contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. For Paul, the secret of contentment has everything to do not with our work and our self-sufficiency. It has nothing to do with our work and our self-sufficiency. Paul writes that contentment has everything to do with the work of Jesus, with Christ's sufficiency. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And Paul isn't saying that God will give us the strength to do whatever we want to do. Paul's point is that Christ's work for us on the cross and Christ's work in us by his spirit will give us the strength to handle whatever comes our way. In Jesus, we have a savior, Paul writes, who gives weak, stressed out, frantic, and discontented, restless people like you and me the resources, the grace the truth, the faith, the hope, and the love that we need to navigate whatever circumstances come our way. The secret, Paul writes, is that even though our circumstances may change, our Christ does not change. The secret is, is that no matter how weak you feel this morning, no matter how tired you find yourself this morning, no matter how desperate you might even be this morning, the secret is that the Lord is near, as Paul writes, that God is with us and Christ is strong. The secret is that once we embrace the content of our lives in Christ, we no longer keep holding back or holding on to our lives. True gospel contentment enables us to give our lives away. And that's why at the, in the, at the end of this letter, merged with this whole secret of contentment, is then this turn where Paul gets personal talking about generosity. In particular, talking about the generosity of the Philippians. He talks about how the, gen the Philippians were the only church in a particular time of need that's engaged in the matter of giving and receiving. It was only you, he says. And in fact, he's refer referring back to a crisis that took place in Jerusalem where all the churches were asked to help in the midst of a great need amongst the churches in Jerusalem. And the only church that responded was the Philippian church. Paul actually will write in, in the second letter to the Corinthians we have in our Bible in chapter 8. He'll talk to the Corinthians about the Philippians and he'll say that they excelled in the grace of giving. He'll write their extreme poverty, poverty in Philippi, welled up in rich generosity. If you haven't caught on yet, we've now moved into the second phase of this sermon, which is all about the G word, giving. Or the, church, the fancy church word we dress it up with, stewardship. The word that if I had announced this in advance, most of you would have said, you know, I got something going on today. I'm not going to be here today. That's the word that will drive people away, giving and stewardship. So for those of you who I pulled a bait and switch on, I have to give you 30 seconds to leave before I continue. No harm, no foul. 
Okay, you said you'd stay. All right. Paul talks about contentment, and that leads itself naturally to generosity, to giving, because the two go hand in hand. He points out contentment leads to generosity, and he points this out in the lives of the Philippians. The Philippians, he, he notices in this letter and in 2 Corinthians, exhibited uncommon generosity, and they did it because of the gospel. They did it because of the gospel. Their generosity reflected the graciousness of God. And that's why Paul writes, their, their giving, their generosity was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. What Paul is saying is that the Philippians embraced and received the love and mercy of the cross, the joy of resurrection, their contentment as citizens of heaven, and paid it forward. They paid it forward. Beloved, as we engage this, this end, the end of this letter, as we engage this taboo topic off in the church, I ask you, what is your motivation for giving? What is your motivation for giving? And you hear a lot about it when you come to church. What is your motivation for giving? Are we giving? Do we give out of guilt? Do we give because, boy, that pastor can sure make me feel bad? Do we give because our spouse is hitting us in the side with the elbow? Do we give because we hear a testimony or a story and all of a sudden our eyes well up and we're like, oh, I, I, okay. Do we give out of guilt? Are we giving because we should? Or maybe some of us here, are we giving out of our emotions? Because we feel like it today. Today I feel like giving. I'll give something. Or do we give out of a kind of a second, you know, supplemental insurance kind of thing? You know, there's some holes in our lives that had half-hearted commitment to Jesus, and we want to kind of compensate for some of those things, just kind of make sure everything's covered, you know, just in case there's any deficiencies. And so our giving is just kind of an understanding between us and God. Yeah, yeah, it's all grace. But in case I didn't really buy into that whole grace thing, here's a little something. Guilt, emotion, insurance, all of these. And they're so often the common reasons why we give, not just in church, but in our lives. These things, these attitudes, these postures are not expressions of generosity. These postures are the byproducts of manipulation either being manipulated by another person, by others, or they're the products of trying to ourselves to manipulate God. And what Paul wants us to understand, what he expresses to us through the Philippians, is how we give, if we give, is a reflection, a byproduct of our level of contentment. And so what it really comes down to, beloved, is generosity is less about spending time with a calculator and more about spending time at the cross. It's less about stressing, stressing out to come up with just the right number we can give. And isn't that what most of us do? Okay, how much can I give? How much, all right, I have to give something. How much can I give? It's less about that, Paul says. That's stressful. And it's more about resting in the reality that though Jesus was rich, for our sake, he became poor. When we calculate the riches that our Savior lavished upon us, rather than thinking about the bare minimum that we can afford, generosity becomes the sum of the equation. What Paul is saying about the Philippians and through them is that generosity becomes the means by which we teach others the math of grace. And it's new math, this grace. Math, new, grace is new math. We teach others the new math of grace, that how out of nothing we get everything in Christ. And that's why he writes to the Corinthians, they, out of their extreme poverty, they had nothing welled up with rich generosity. Beloved, that's what makes our offerings on Sunday 
that time, our offerings every day of our lives, so valuable. It's not about being forced or coerced to give. It's not about a cosmic bill that we have to pay. I mean, we've heard it before, but it's worth hearing again because I just don't think it sinks in. God doesn't need anything from us. He's God. We've got a whole book, the Psalms, let alone the rest of the Bible, that says over and over again that the earth and everything in it belongs to him because he created it all. And the latter half of our story goes even further than that, that in Christ, on the cross, he's paid it all too. This ain't about what God needs. What we offer to God is intended to be the willing fruits of faith because of his provision. If you will, our generosity towards others in God's name is a reflection of God's grace at work, of our contentment with Jesus in our own lives. And that's why Paul doesn't just say that the Philippians have reflected the graciousness of God, but he goes further to say that they've extended the graciousness of God. Because that's what it's all about. Generosity extends the graciousness of God. And so he writes, it was good of you to share in my troubles. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. In being generous, the Philippians made God's grace tangible, experiential for others. I look around, I look around between two services and when we're gathered together as a community, and one of the things that I think about as a pastor when I read words like this from Paul is how has God empowered us to be generous as a community? I look around and I see the diversity of gifts, talents, skills, resources, and I ask, what are the gifts that God has placed in our lives together that enable us to live into our name? Grace. And I know that often in the church we can dwell, and I may be guilty of this, and I apologize if it's more, this is more often the case than not. We can often dwell on our limitations, our failures, and our shortcomings. But for a moment, as Paul calls us at the beginning of this last part of the letter, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to say it again, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice on the generosity that God has brought to this community, in and through this community. I have no idea, nor do any of the other pastors or members of council, none of us know how much you give or who gives what. And I don't want to know. But what I can tell you, I can tell you as a whole, I can give you a tiny slice of what your generosity here at Grace is accomplishing for the good of others. Beloved, your generosity enables me to make a living preaching God's word and ministering to others in the name of Jesus. And I say that with great humility because I used to work in business before I was a pastor. And I remember those days when, when I got my paycheck, my common expression was, they're not paying me enough for what I'm doing. And because of your generosity, I now say, I can't believe I get paid for doing this. I can't believe I get paid for doing this. And I feel the weight of living into your generosity, of being true to that. And, it, and your generosity doesn't just make that possible for me. You make that possible for everyone here on staff to do that. The word is preached. The sacraments are administered. Acts of healing, hope, and love take place in Jesus' name because of your generosity. Lives are changed. Lives are transformed. Children in Sunday school, youth on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, students at our school, preschools, elementary, middle school, adults through Alpha and Disciple and a host of other ministries, our neighbors around us through Orange County Care Connections, the Good News Ministry, Miracle Ranch and the World Mission Prayer League. Beloved, I could go on and on praising the Lord, rejoicing for all the kingdom work God growing and strengthening his church and his people through the gospel of Jesus that is thanks 
to your generosity. And I do rejoice in it, and I thank you. But I also want to take this moment to encourage those of you who are not participating at all or regularly to be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. Not because God needs it. And not because, as you've heard, and it's true, we are in flux. We've had some people leave in the midst of things that have taken place in the last year and giving has gone down. Those things are true, but that's not why I'm speaking to you right now. If you're someone who's here who isn't participating or isn't participating regularly, I'm saying it not for God or for grace, but for you. If you're here, the clearest sign that you know that God's called you here, and some of you are new, you've come in the last year, maybe two years, and you're here every so often. If you want to know if God's called you here, then the answer is, are you content? Because if you're experiencing contentment, then that means you're called here. And the other side of that is, is if you're experiencing contentment because God has called you here, then the natural, it's not forced, natural response out of that contentment is to participate in the generosity of this community. To give. To give for the sake of what God is doing in and through this community. And so if you're new, or maybe not even not so new, and you're just coming back, I encourage you for the sake of experiencing the fullness of that loop of contentment and generosity to participate in what God is doing here. And it matters. It matters because apparently, if you notice what Paul continues to write, apparently, according to Paul, the giving that we do for the kingdom of God is as as important for us as it is for the people that we give to. Did you notice that Paul shouldn't be an accountant? Because Paul has an odd bit of accounting here at the end of the letter. Did you catch it? Where Paul writes, generosity, he says for the Philippians, is credited to your account. Say, what? What credit? What is this credit that Paul is talking about? What Paul's saying is that when you're generous, when you give your money away, when we actually invest in the work of the kingdom, it unleashes the dividends of God's graciousness in our own lives. The dividends. Not the reality, the dividends, the bonus of God's graciousness in our own lives. That's why he writes, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. And then later on writes, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Generosity unleashes the dividends of God's graciousness in our own lives. This isn't a prosperity gospel promise. This isn't a prosperity gospel promise that guarantees that if you give away all your money, you'll discover your best life now and receive all your wants. It's not what Paul says. Paul isn't promising unlimited possibilities here that if we just have faith in Jesus, God will make us successful in whatever undertaking upon which we embark. This isn't a prosperity promise about wants. Paul is giving us a fear-eclipsing promise about needs. What Paul is writing, what Paul is saying is the promise is that God is wealthy. He is is rich in mercy, love, and grace in Christ Jesus. And from the inestimable gold mine of that gospel, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever challenges before before us, God's got it covered. It's back to the secret. The secret of contentment is the same thing as the secret of generosity. That all we do... When it's done in Jesus, when we do all things in Jesus, when the strength of Christ is what's at work in us, that strength is sufficient to make us content no matter what the outcome. It's sufficient, sufficient to make us abundant, though it seems as though we are poor. To be successful, even though we seem as though we're failing. Unleashing the dividends of grace 
What Paul's getting at with this whole idea of crediting our own account is that through generosity, when we give our money and our possessions away, we escape the danger of making our money and our possessions our God. The dividends of grace, of generosity, is the deeper contentment of the freedom of letting God be God rather than trying to be gods ourselves. Because my brothers and sisters in Christ, at least in my experience, we make poor messiahs. We make poor messiahs. So as we come to the end of this letter, the secret of being content is getting on our knees. It's getting on our knees and letting our thoughts be filled with the mind of Christ and putting into practice the love, the sacrifice, the service, the forgiveness that he has lavishly poured into our lives. When we experience contentment in Jesus, when our lives rest upon him, his grace, we cannot help but share that secret. That contentment with others. Contentment leads to generosity. They go hand in hand. True gospel contentment is contagious. When we have more than enough in our lives, when we are satisfied, we are naturally drawn towards providing and ensuring that state of grace for others. Contentment and generosity, these are the implicit and explicit byproducts of occupying the gospel. Contentment and generosity, these are the implicit and explicit means by which we share our faith in Jesus Christ with others. As we've gone through this letter, you probably didn't count, but if you did, our Savior's name, Jesus' name, has been mentioned over 40 times in this short letter. 40 times. Basically, the name of Jesus shows up once every two or three verses. And this is not by accident, because at the end of the day, what it's all about, this generous grace that the Apostle Paul is preaching, is not a thing. It's a person. Jesus Christ. One day. That's why we're here, right? One day, Jesus will return. And as we have sung this morning, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that his love never fails. But what Paul has shared with us in this letter to the Philippians is that occupying the gospel means not waiting until the end of all things to make this profession of faith. It means following Jesus. It means not just singing that God's love never fails and will not fail when we need it. It means sharing the, that love that does not fail now. Not just with our words, but with every fiber of our being. Being content in that love that never fails and therefore being generous and extending and expressing that love that never fails. Beloved, as we are about to enter the season of Lent and to follow Christ, let us be content to be generous. Amen? Amen. Pray with me, please.